You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, this time on Trillions, we're going to talk about ESG. What is ESG? Yeah, a lot of people don't know, which I think that's part of the hurdle of people getting more interested is just knowing what that acronym is. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, which is sort of like the three pillars that generally are used as screens to find out which companies are uh, you know, sort of progressing in the world uh, in terms of how they behave. And it's sort of a way to grade companies um, on things that aren't just profit, right? It's sort of the other side of the equation besides just making money. And it's become much more popular in recent years. And, and there, there's a lot of speculation that this could be a massive opportunity as an investing thesis going forward. The hype is unbelievable. ESG articles are plentiful. They get a lot of great press. Uh, people seem to be into it. I mean, who, who wouldn't be into it? I, it sounds I think, really good, right? Yeah. There's uh, dozens and dozens of ETFs being launched every year that are in the ESG theme. So there's plenty of product. However, the app assets are kind of lacking. They have, uh, uh, looks like $6.8 billion, right? So that's not a lot, okay? That's um, when Vanguard the overall does market that. Is yeah, trillions, Vanguard takes right? that in in a week. Yeah. All right. So there's a little bit of a gap between the hype and the assets, which I think is really what we want to explore today, and also practically how you use them. This is one of those topics that I've been pinged on Twitter about. People do want us to do an ESG episode, so here we are. Here we are. And joining us to help us make sense of this is someone that you brought in, and you guys are up in Boston today. I'm in New York. Who do you have with you? Here with us are two experts from the ESG field, but in different ways. Graham Sinclair, who I know on Twitter and actually met through a friend a long time ago, who is the at ESG architect. So his, he's literally, that's his whole life. He is a consultant uh, to companies about ESG. He'll go over that in a minute. And Matt Bartolini from State Street, he has to take ESG and make a product out of it and then try to get the product sold. So I think we have, you know, the two sides of the equation in terms of trying to figure out what's going on with ESG ETFs and how to use them. This time on Trillions, what's the deal with ESG ETFs? Matt, Graham, thanks for joining us on the show. Graham, you actually didn't come alone, did you? You brought someone with you. Who'd you bring? No, we've got a fairly aggressive intern program at <laughs> Cinco, Sustainable Investment Consulting. I came in with my daughter. Fridays are uh, Georgia K and Daddy Days. All right. Child labor. We have a couple of questions we'd like to ask her. Uh, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, and to be clear, not child labor. It's extreme millennial. <laughs> this is yeah, the what future. Genera- by the way, what generation would she be? Uh, is she Z or is it, are we beyond that with her? Well, I, I'm pitching you. It's, it's double A. Double A. Double you go a. around the alphabet again. I will say she's the youngest guest we've had on this podcast and potentially the youngest guest in the studio. I could tell from the looks uh, we were getting from some so a lot of the people. Of, a lot of people talk about ES- <laughs> a lot of people talk about ESG as the future. So let's actually talk to someone who's rooted in the future. What What does your daddy do? Uh, spinning. Spinning. I'm a spinning instructor. You didn't know. I got skills. 
He's he's um he's an expert at ESG. Do you like ESG? I I have I haven't even been to ESG. <laughs> you haven't been there yet. It's a it's a pretty it's yeah. an interesting place to visit. Well, you like clean water, right? Yeah, I love clean water. And trees. You like trees? Uh, I think so. Can you tell um, Mr. Eric? Uh, you're watching Puffin Rock, right? Puffin Rock. And do they like to swim in the clean ocean or the dirty ocean? Clean. All right. I think, I think she's on board, Graham. <laughs> Once you get someone sold on clean ocean and water, you're pretty much halfway there with the ESG pitch. It's interesting she said ESG is a place. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my kids probably think ETF is a place, and I li- Daddy lives there. <laughs> You, you guys have done the dad episode? You got to do the kid episode. I'm for that. <laughs> okay, so Graham, Matt, let's, let's have a better sense of what, what you guys do and how you got into this space. Joel, I got into uh, retirement funds investments out of law school back in South Africa, uh, rolled up through uh, various shops, ended up at SEI Investments, which explains how I ended up in the U.S. I didn't mean to be. I was abducted by a beautiful, brilliant young woman. <laughs> I am an ESG architect, which means I take an investment problem and I integrate environment, social governance factors into solving that problem into the management systems and the processes, the manufacturing, the marketing. And the other way we come at it is if, uh, uh, if there's an issue that we need to develop the investment thesis for the investment case. An example would be I designed the Access to Nutrition Index, and there the question came from the Gates Foundation, Foundation Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, uh, and their question was, how do we make nutrition a serious investment issue to Wall Street? Uh, and that's how we developed the investment case. And Matt, can you talk a little bit about what you do at State Street? Yeah, sure. So within State Street, in the spider ETF business, I'm the, the head of research for, for that area. And sitting within a broader asset management firm, one of our goals is to solve clients' issues. And one of those is how to align financial goals to also social goals. And that's where ESG naturally fits in. So how do you be able to provide you know, long-term diversified returns, but do it in a way that matches how you feel about you know, your carbon footprint or about gender diversity? And you know, that's really what the, the solutions that we have within our firm we're trying to do. And then it just comes down to just portfolio construction. And that's a big part of my role is taking all of these different ETFs, not even just from our, ourselves, but other issuers and then mutual funds and different other managed accounts, and what happens when you blend them all together? Do you start to have overcrowding risk and enter into something that you maybe not wanted? Just Let's just define ESG. I've been on panels where it takes 35 minutes. Can you guys give me the one-minute definition of ESG, dumb down, um, and each of you do it? That way people can just get their handle around what exactly it is. Graham. So, uh, the investment case uh, summarizes the forward-looking business case for portfolio companies at any point in time. All factors matter to doing business in the 21st century. All factors, including environment, social, and governance factors. They aren't on the side. They aren't a corner. They aren't something you plug in later. If you are building a business or investing on planet Earth, using humans to move money or do things or buy things, and you rely on the rule of law to make sure stuff ends up where it's meant to uh, end up and you get your money back, There's environment, social governance in every investment decision. The biggest question has to be, why hasn't this always been profiled, proactively managed by the investment industry? It's getting better. It's coming from a long way back. That was like five lines. Matt, what's yours? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a problem to label it. And I think it's it's really hard because even if we look at the U.S. listed ETF industry, and we look at the funds that are classified as ESG by data providers, anyone focused on the U.S. there's such a dispersed amount of returns last year. It's twenty two percent difference between the best performing and worst performing ESG fund. So classification is one of these problems that, as an asset management firm and someone deeply engaged in ETFs, that's really hard for to do. And I think that's why, you, to Eric's point earlier, you don't see that big of asset growth because you need every, it's a very personal decision. What is the most ESG fund? You know, does it not invest in any oil, or does it invest in some oil? And I think that's one of the biggest problems of creating a you know, deep-rooted classification system. It also feels um, like it's become hot relatively recently. But is that a naive perspective? Has it how much data is actually out there so that we can make informed decisions here? Well, if you check your Google searches, you'll see it, it goes ballistic. Even even on an analysis of studies of the impact of environment, social governance factors, the studies themselves from the early 70s, almost nothing from 1970 when Milton Friedman had his classic business of businesses, business uh, misunderstanding. Uh, through to 2015, it's just basically it's a hockey stick. So even studies of studies of what's happening in the investment units, uh, universe has ramped up. Absolutely, there's a lot of hubris. There's, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of greenwashing. There's, there's uh, situations where companies claim to do things and they don't. I mean, how many of you believe those towels that you hang back on the rack is because the hotel company is trying to be sustainable? You're supposed to hang them back on the rack. <laughs> you leave them on the floor to get it a clean um, one. Let's just think about an ESG approach, right? Are you screening out for things or are you going and trying to track companies that are literally making solar panels? What's the method that's really the, the best way to do it? So uh, working with an institutional investor or a house who's making these decisions, it starts with how you view the world. What do you believe? So when Kelpers uh, rebuilt their whole investment process earlier this decade, they started with what are our beliefs? How do we see the world? What is our, uh, that rolls into what is our investment philosophy? And then you work through the various elements of what are your processes, what are the people you're going to put in place, how are you going to build these portfolios, how are you going to track the impact and the performance? So ESG is really a systems-level issue. That's why I came to the, the moniker ESG architect, the same way that all investment today relies on digital, on software to, to execute and make things happen and inform making it better, so too uh, with ESG. ESG sits across the investment life cycle. Yeah, and I think there's there's different levels of ESG. Same with smart beta. You can have something that's like a factor tilt that invests in every stock in the S&P 500, or you can just do high octane, the 50 cheapest stocks for a value screen. ESG is somewhat similar. You can do something where you just divest from energy companies that have proven fossil fuel reserves, or you can take the MSCI ACWI, optimize it to have the lowest carbon footprint for a level of tracking error. And there's sort of those two spectrums of you know purity versus something that would give you um, a benchmark-like return, but in a more ESG framework. And I'd like to just jump on, Eric, please, if we could, on your awesome podcast, could we walk away from using language like doing good, soul, feelings, values, personal. This is, this is just the way investment will be in future on one planet using humans, using a rule of law. This is, there's no extra earth 
there's no extra water, there's no extra clean air, right? So, so part of this is, and your, your fingers curl up every time you watch these interviews, it takes about three questions, and then the talking head is going to ask the investment specialist, so uh, can this match your values? You know, almost hear the, the change in the term. Striking this is, next this question. This is technical, <laughs> this is architecture. Well, th- this brings up one thing I hear on Twitter a lot when I point out, like when Vanguard launched the SG, and it was cheap. I was like, well, now we finally got dirt cheap ESG. Now we, now we know whether it was a, che- you know, a cheap thing or just an ESG issue. And a lot of people replied with, it doesn't matter what the cost is. It's too subjective. Vanguard thinks you're supposed to screen out alcohol, tobacco, this, that, and the other. I actually only think three of those things are important. Those other two are fine. And so subjectivity of what's important to you, I've heard, makes people just sort of stop from applying it to investment and maybe do it in their own – way in their own like personal uh, life. Uh, but the idea that you're State Street going to decide for me what is ESG and what isn't. Yeah. And I, that's one of the problems that you do run into is that it goes back to that personal decision. So I've had conversations with investors and advisors of all walks of life. And I was talking to one of them and they say, well, we invest in a separately managed account uh, focused on animal welfare. So companies that have really strong animal welfare programs that's really hard to package into an ETF because the impetus for an ETF was to offer democratized access to an, an area. And you want to make that broad and appealing to a, a pretty wide swath of investors. And something like animal welfare, that might not be as applicable to something that is maybe just you know uh, fossil fuel reserves free, something that's broader. And that's one of the adoption challenges within ESG is that to your point, everyone has a different classification of what it means to me. I don't want to own anyone that ever interacts with oil. That's a that's a harder, broad exposure to give someone because there might not be that many people out there for that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Let's just talk about oil for a minute. Uh, I always find this to be somewhat hypocritical. I think the term is slacktivism. You know, you tweet something and all of a sudden you're a good person. Um, you know, investing in, a, a, say, SPYX, which is yours, which is the S&P 500 X fossil fuel. So you carve out a lot of the oil mm-hmm. uh, producers in there, oil companies, Exxon and, and such. But a lot of people still use oil, right? So they're actually not investing in a company they help make profitable so isn't the real answer to just get an electric car and then not invest in it? Because if your goal is to have a portfolio that makes money and you're not willing to not use oil in your daily life, what would be the point of not investing in that company? Yeah, I mean, that would be, you know, you'd be hedged, right? So you want to make sure that you still have the oil upside beta. And averaged you out. Your, you'd be averaged yeah. out, sir. You wouldn't yeah. be hedged. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, to your point, like if you're going to invest in this way, you're likely going to be living this way. And if you're not, there, that's a... Uh, a different of aligning your financial values to your social ones. You know, the, that just creates a asymmetric profile. And I think to your point about, you know, how do you construct these exposures, there's to some extent people that would, you know, want to have no exposure even to the oil refineries because they're still conducting in the business and supporting the oil industry. And, you know, that's why, you know, if you look at firms that are really at the innovative state of renewable energy, you might want to look for those first. In, in some instances, they actually might be in the traditional energy sector, like a, a company like Entbridge. 
they they definitely run a lot of natural gas pipelines, but they also have a significant amount of wind farms across the United States and North and Canada. So they're, this is where it goes to like the environmental space where you want to actually look what these firms are doing and how they're actually organizing their business because climate change is real and companies interacting in fossil fuels understand that. And there's going to be a natural shift towards renewables. And we're definitely going to see that over the next you know, 10, 20 years where renewables take a bigger stage in terms of um, energy production. And there's also regulation coming down the pike, which changes the whole model for portfolio companies. When regulation changes, then it doesn't become an issue of, oh, do I have a green investor or a brown investor? Then it's just, I'm a company. I need to work in this environment. I need to upgrade the way I'm working. And the classic example is a circular economy and McDonald's or Starbucks in the UK. Following Blue Planet 2, uh, horrific images. People realize this plastic floating around the world. Now they're going to say, hmm, McDonald's, Starbucks, about all that plastic and those cups that you, you put into the trash, it's your problem now. Go and solve it. Yeah, and these disasters definitely can can hurt a company. And, it, you know, let's talk about this, this brass tax of investing, right? So the biggest ECESG ETF, uh, no offense, Matt, is from iShares. <laughs> it's SUSA. It's the MSCI ESG. It's the only one over a billion. And it, it, to me, it kind of embodies a typical ESG fund. It's a little overweight tech and it's a little underweight energy. So in the last 12 months, right, those FANG stocks, the tech stocks didn't do well. So this was down 1% more than the market. Talk about how someone would, might need to stomach underperformance to go all the way with this. Uh, but obviously, if tech does better and energy struggles, you might do a little better. Uh, so talk about the, both you guys, the performance aspect and selling people on that regard. Yeah, I mean, part of it comes down to just index construction, right? So the ability to be craftsmen in creating this exposure to not introduce any idiosyncratic risks. And you're talking about sector sector weighting. So obviously, you know, our fossil fuel reserves free, SPY X, we are naturally underweight energy. So if the energy sector pops by 50% because of, you know, for some catalyst, you will underperform. And having that level of intelligence while entering that product is important so you can understand what that client experience will be. Same thing with she. We knew that we didn't want to just look at the firms with the best gender diversity and then just allocate to those because sector biases can play a huge role into it. So think about those low volatility strategies that become just utilities and REITs funds. They become very highly correlated to whatever that sector is doing. So you want to really let that stock selection in the index construction drive returns, and that's what you have with Xi, where you have more of a sector-controlled bias. So it just comes down to understanding the index construction and being comfortable with the potential return path, knowing that, yes, I'm going to be underweight energy. If energy is up 50%, I'm going to underperform. But my viewpoint is that over a long time frame, as we talk about this shift more to renewable energy, that firms that are embracing that renewable capability will lead to better performance and, you know, I understand that going into it, and that's the, that's the big problem is just knowing what you own. I mean, that's the old Peter Peter Lynch adage, and that applies to anything. Yeah, and and, and uh, something we haven't touched on, Eric uh, and Joel, that uh, you know, while I really follow Trillions and I really enjoy what you guys do, the the technology, the method, the vessel, the vehicle that these investment opportunities come through. The same way we love Jack Bogle for how he changed the industry. There's a great chart you put up recently, uh, Eric, about the a- average cost of, of managing money through. Vanguard or mutual fund versus others, is 
the, the availability through an ETF, the ETF is the right structure. So what I don't prefer to see is fund manager ABC with you know, wood paneling and a high-end cappuccino machine talking to me about sustainability and the ESG uh, performance and impact of their portfolio, but they're still delivering it in a sleeve with a big fat you know, 1% to up to 2.5% uh, fee. It's got to be low-priced and delivered delivering the answer. Well, here's a follow to that question, which is what would ESG be without ETFs? I mean, so in mutual fund land, there's actually a, a sizable portion of ESG products. There's actually more assets and more products in uh, within mutual fund structures. However, the direction of travel is more launches within the ETF structure, likely a result of some of the benefits that ETFs have relative to mutual funds. All the money's going there. Yeah. yeah that's, the flows. Yeah. So, to that end, though, how many more ESG ETFs do we expect to enter the market going forward? I think any fund, any strategy is trying to do that. I know Green Alpha advises the guys who co-branded with the Sierra Club. They used to run a mutual fund. They shut it down. It was unsuccessful. They've got a new strategy. Their 2019 task list, top of list roll out an ETF. I think every strategy, and, and what I enjoy about the low-fee structure and the ability to be tactical rolling out product into the ETF space is that it means you can cater for, for nuance and for a variety of opportunities. So it's not just it's, e it's ESG or not. No, no, no. It's ESG and it's got a tilt towards focused on how do we focus on uh, people solving for water? It's got a tilt. How do we solve for people solving for dirty air? How do we tilt for diversity, you know, race, gender, and so on? There's, so ETF gives you that opportunity. There's even a vegan ETF coming out sure. soon, which claims to save 17 animals per $10,000 invested in the ETF. So I do think we're going to get to these levels where they're actually going to post what you're doing with the purchase. Um, I want to ask just about uh, one of the things about – ESG that might be a limiting factor and, and also penalizes investors is that it's a really tidy way for investment management companies to make a little bit more money, right? Because the fees can be higher. Uh, is that is that going to stick around or will, the, will there have to be downward pressure to get the fees down? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the average fee in the anything classified as ESG, I think it's about 46 basis points, which is roughly the average fee of ETF. So they're kind of on par. I mean, our philosophy is that if you are intending... For, I know we said we didn't want to use these terms earlier, but if you're intending to do good in portfolios and be good actors and try to enrich in the environment or you know, the call for governance that we have, that you shouldn't have to pay a ton for it. So we have a pricing philosophy around that that are very cost effective. And I think that that's going to be the trend going forward is that investors are to make this decision – they don't want to be charged fees that are you know, in the 80s and 90s. Well, let me just jump in here with this because I know what she's saying. Um, thematic ETFs in particular, I think, are really where you see some of that 60, 70 basis points. But most of these are 20 or below, 0.2% or below. And listen, compared to what's going on in the mutual fund area, I mean, the amount of money taken in these you know, 403B plans and the loads and the expenses – this is nickel dime. I mean, this is not much fees at all. Plus, there's no capital gains distributions. Um, look, the ETF issuers have to live in a virtual terradome with where there's no revenue, so that investors can have like this paradise portfolio. So, in general, I find that uh, punching down is ETFs, punching up is to mutual funds. Uh, I don't find a lot of slickness uh, in terms of ETF ESG ETF fees. I think some of the early ones were 50. But they've now been competed out. Goldman, Vanguard, State Street have come in under 20. 
And I think uh, every area has this fee pressure. Some just take a little more longer to catch up than the plain vanilla area. So um, let me jump on the end there, Eric. So I agree. And ETF is the answer to um, asset gathering for any shop right now and should be going forward. I also want to – we're investment professionals. So remember the, the basis of your question there is, oh, we cannot consider environmental, social, and governance factors when you make decisions about a company. And if we put it in there, uh, no, we're going to charge you an extra fee. That is, that is intellectually bankrupt. Like I will laugh at someone who tries to make that argument to me in a pitch deck or presentation. It's like going to a restaurant and saying, uh, you know, you're going to buy the food. You're going to pay extra for the fork, the plate, and the air conditioning. <laughs> ESG is in every decision of planet Earth using humans using a rule of law. And just to uh, the mutual funds that track ESG, we looked at this. The average fee is about 1%. Uh, and they have $60 billion, whereas the ETF average fee is, um, well, if you asset-weighted average, it's more like 30 25 um, And so you, you know, you're looking at a third of the cost. So if anything, the ESG ETF would be a smart move for the people in the ESG mutual fund. And a lot of those mutual funds underperform general benchmarks as well. So I think a lot of that money is probably going to come over eventually. The question is, can you get new audiences too? And this, guys, we haven't talked much about the alpha opportunities. Let's, uh, there's a, the best study, the, the most, the broadest study, out in tw- December 2015 by Germans. They're going to be pretty thorough, right? If we work in uh, stereotypes here, 90 percent of the studies, 2,200 studies of performance and, and connections between portfolio performance, company performance, and ESG. 90 percent of studies found a non-negative relationship. 35 percent were positive. 7% were negative. MSCI ESG leaders uh, emerging markets index, one, three, and five year, has outperformed the, the MSCI uh, emerging markets index without an ESG tilt or an ESG filter to it. So uh, it's, there's an alpha opportunity that we really haven't uh, addressed yet. I, I think, guys, we should come back and talk about the alpha opportunities. I will always welcome the opportunity to talk about alpha. Graham, Matt, thanks for joining us on Trillions. You guys totally outperformed. We also just want to take a moment and give a shout out to Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, who passed away last week. Yeah, I mean, huge loss. Uh, This is a guy who, in my opinion, will probably have ended up having the biggest impact in the at least the investment space, if not the whole financial industry uh, over a hundred year stretch. He is different. You know, there's great people running money, Warren Buffett, and that's not he was about something completely different. And. I think it was interesting how he changed the system by using Invented the index fund. Millions and millions of people have a retirement, basically, thanks to him. But the bigger deal was the mutual ownership structure of Vanguard. You know, having the fund investors own the company, every time they had profit, they would vote to lower the fees, not to pay the managers more and or expand. And so over the 30 years, if I showed you a chart of Vanguard's average fee, it goes from about 65 in 1975, and it just slowly goes down to now it's averaged 10 basis points, right? And they were lowering fees when no one cared. In the 90s, you didn't have to lower your fees. People were buying mutual funds. They didn't know what they cost. So he had to wait 30 years, really, for his idea to sort of catch fire. And you got to just take your hat off to the guy. And he sacrificed some personal wealth. He was definitely wealthy at 80 million net worth. But I think history is going to be very, very kind to him, especially as these new generations come up and think more about income inequality He'll be revered more and more, and I only see his sort of legend growing. So if you haven't checked out our interview with him, 
Uh, we, we had him on the show over the summer, and then he again makes an appearance on our other show, The ETF Story. I was really happy we got that interview. Um, there's a lot we can actually go into the file and I think bring out and have a part two down the road. But man, he riffed on everything, especially he spun it forward. He talked about the future of the advice business, the future of money management. And I loved he dropped a lot of little pearls of wisdom, uh, Ben Franklin style. We got just an incredible hour and a half with him. And, and I'm very and grateful. One of, and one of the last interviews. So, yeah. Mr. Bogle, thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Graham Sinclair at ESG Architect. And you can find Matt Bartolini at State Street ETFs. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.